Blog Talk Radio. Eastern family and friends, welcome to Memories of a Great Airline, as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Kind of a long title, but it says what the show will be about. Stories about the people and friends of Eastern over the history of the airline. Your storytellers will read stories found in several Eastern publications, such as the Repartee Magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association, The Wings of Man, The Wings of Many, the Silverliners Magazine for the Flight Attendants, News Wings, which started it all with Pitcairn Aviation, and many more. Stories that tell the history of the many departments of an airline, Men and women performing their duties that made Eastern Airlines the great airline it was. Pilots of the early history of the airline that were asked to fly their open cockpit biplanes into the night skies, into good weather and bad weather, fog, rain, and snow, with the most crude instruments compared with today's high-tech cockpits. Roads, railroad tracks, and the early radio ranges filled with static were their only means of navigation. Landing at night with only the glow of flare pots put out earlier by ground personnel was a challenge that modern-day airmen cannot fathom with their full automatic landing systems. We owe much to these heroes of aviation progress. Maintenance performed by the early mechanics dealt with fabric airplanes, needed to be patched and engines with the complexity of the internal combustion engines, needing constant repairs day or night, 
broken down in pastures like fields of grass and weeds. No matter what the weather, the mechanics under the direction of Mr. Johnny Ray always came through to keep the airline in the air. Hostesses were hired once passenger airplanes came about, like the Curtis Condor and the Kingbirds. They were introduced to the traveling public. From the early hostesses, as they were originally called, to the stewardesses in the 50s and 60s, to our present flight attendants on the jumbo jets carrying several hundreds of passengers in a single airplane. These professionals are the first responders when an aircraft has an emergency and to protect their passengers. That could even cost them their lives. From just showing up at the airfield to catch a flight to their destination, to the marvels of the modern-day reservation system, which Eastern Airlines pioneered in its early development, that allows for even booking your flight and seat from the comfort of your own home today. You've got to sell seats to stay in business, in the words of our beloved president. There has to be an ass in every seat, the airline excelled in sales and marketing. These men and women gave the airline prestigious businesses, business such as the official airline of Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. The airline of so many firsts, it would be hard to list here, just to mention a few. Uh, the first Boeing 727 flown by Eastern, the first wide-bodied aircraft, L-1011, the first air shuttle, the first Boeing 757, and many, many more. And finally, the stars of the show, the Eastern Aircraft, from the Pitcairn Mail Wing Aircraft to the Jumbo Jets, like the Lockheed L-1011, the Airbus A300, the McDonnell Douglas DC-10, the Boeing 747 to the all-glass cockpit of the Boeing 757. I could go on with why this airline, Eastern Airlines, became a legend in its time. However, we think the radio broadcast that you'll be hearing will more than tell the story, so we invite you to sit back and enjoy the memories of a great airline as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Harry Lindquist and Captain Neil Holland will be joined by others as we introduce episodes each week. We hope you will join us on these Monday evenings at 8 p.m. East Coast time by going to blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. That's Captain Eddie. C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E. And now for our first story. So many great stories existed back in the early days of Eastern's history. Again, another story that included some famous people came out of the Eastern Air Transport News Wing newsletter dated May-June 1933. It reads... Nation's hostess flies as Amelia Earhart's guest. Displaying again her love of flying, Ms. Franklin D. Roosevelt made a night flight over Washington and Baltimore in the 1933 Curtis Condor of Eastern Air Transport. She and her party were the guest of Amelia Earhart Putnam and included G. Hall Roosevelt, the First Lady's brother, George Palmer Putnam, publisher, Mr. and Mrs. Eugene Vidal, and Thomas B. Doe, president of Eastern Air Transport. Top of the world. Taking off from Washington Airport, the airliner climbed through the night skies to 5,000 feet. Amelia Earhart left her distinguished guests in the cabin and took the plane's control, flying it to Baltimore. She returned to the cabin then, and Mrs. Roosevelt sat beside the pilot as he circled Baltimore and turned again toward Washington. 
It was just like looking down from the top of the world, the nation's hostess, Mrs. Roosevelt said. Washington was marvelously beautiful from the air at night, and Baltimore, so huge beneath our wings, was an inspiring sight. A quiet airliner. Once before, Mrs. Roosevelt made a pleasure flight at night in a Curtis Condor of Eastern Air Transport. That time it was over New York, and she declared it was like a trip through fairyland. Her Washington-Baltimore flight was in a new 1933-type Condor in which engineering features are included which make it the first quiet liner of the air. Having a noise level of 75 decibels, the same as a Pullman car. The crew was composed of Chief Pilot E.H. Parker, Co-Pilot Earl Steele, and Flying Hostess Edwina Davis. Mrs. Roosevelt has made 11 trips via Eastern Air Transport. Now speaking of hostesses, Eastern hostesses, We had a hostess back in 1933 that was on the air. Ms. Marion Cook, flying hostess for Eastern Air Transport, recently told a national radio audience of the work she and others in the hostess department are doing. Ms. Cook was guest speaker on the Pennzoil program over the Columbia Broadcasting System. She has traveled over 255,000 miles in the Curtis Condors of Eastern Air Transport in the performance of her duties. And now a page from our Sunday Morning Almanac, April 30th, 1961, 56 years ago today. Launch day for the Eastern Airlines shuttle between Boston, New York, and Washington. One of America's oldest and biggest airlines, Eastern, Promise travelers hourly departures and no reservations required. Just $12 one way from New York to Boston, $14 from New York to Washington. The shuttle was a huge success, a storied part of the golden age of air travel. An article appearing in the Eastern Air Transport Newswing newsletter dated August 1932 reads as follows. Eastern Air sets impressive air figures. During the first half of August, several impressive air transport figures were reached by Eastern Air Transport Incorporated for its more than four years of service. In this period, the 10 millionth mile was passed. The 50,000th passenger was flown, and the 2,500,000th pound of U.S. airmail was carried. Eastern Air began its service on May 1, 1928, as a night mail route between New York and Atlanta. It rapidly grew and now flies nearly 4 million miles annually over a route 2,435 miles long. This company pioneered air transportation between the north and south along the eastern seaboard. It has emphasized comfort in air travel with multi-motored equipment for passenger services. Now, folks, this was May 1st, 1928, or exactly 19, or correction, exactly 95 years ago. We just thought you would like to know. Ella's Beef Easters Radio Air Check and Classic TV Channel. Feel the second. Feel each minute. As the day goes by, feel yourself in it. It's a good day to up and fly away. It's so easy. Here's
Here's some good news from Eastern Airlines. Now you can fly to Miami and Fort Lauderdale at super saver prices. Just $119 for round-trip night coach, $144 for round-trip day coach, and you get all the frills. Just plan to stay at least seven days, but not more than 30 days, and reserve and purchase your ticket a week in advance. For reservations, call your travel agent for Eastern Airlines. Eastern This article appeared in the March 1934 issue of Eastern's Air Transport, Inc.'s News Wings and then was reprinted in The Wings of Many, and it's simply entitled A Passenger. Several airlines in the United States keep a list of the passengers who have traveled on their respective lines. In surveying these lists, it's interesting to note that a number of these air-minded passengers are people who occupy prominent positions in the public life of the country. The occupation and interest of these air travelers cover vast fields. Eastern's Air Transport, Inc. has carried bishops, prize fighters, ambassadors, explorers, lecturers, authors, and politicians. The people who travel by air invariably are interested in air transportation. This interest varies in intensity for such passengers as Count Felix von Luckner, and Admiral Richard Byrd are naturally more enthusiastic about flying than Richard Halliburton and Lowell Thomas. It would seem that amongst these various groups, the mayors of the United States have done the most express traveling, for no less than 15 mayors have been carried on planes operated by Eastern Air Transport. Fiorello Littleflower H. LaGuardia, mayor of United States Key City, can be numbered among the more enthusiastic air travelers. Mr. LaGuardia, realizing future possibilities, has been interested in aviation since its inception. The potential energy stored in LaGuardia's 5 feet 2 inches has made it possible for him to be interested in an industry with which, at present, he has no direct contact. The mayor of City Hall has always been a public-spirited citizen. While serving at Washington in a legislative capacity, Mr. LaGuardia rarely missed an opportunity to represent his constituents. If congressmen received marks in much the same manner as children do in school, LaGuardia would have been the proud possessor of an A for attendance. The feeling for public service, long inherent in Mayor LaGuardia, has caused him to harbor an intense interest in aviation. In this active field, New York's mayor has felt that the public will be served well. His interest in such a progressive field began during the World War when Major LaGuardia resigned from Congress to serve in the Air Force as a pilot on the Austro-Italian front. Upon re-election to Congress as representative, the mayor constantly evinced great interest in anything pertaining to aviation, whether it is military or commercial. Numerous bills designed to benefit aviation were introduced by the New York's flying congressman in the House of Representatives. Mayor LaGuardia has long been an advocate of a Governor's Island airport to serve New York City as an auxiliary to the present facilities. However, the Little Flower is no fireside aviator. Although he wears his insignia of a quiet birdman, a group of aviators who saw service during the war, he constantly made use of the commercial air airlines between New York and Washington when shuttling between these points became a necessity for him. Before undertaking his new job, the mayor-elect made a 2,850-mile flight from Panama to Washington, D.C. over American-operated foreign and domestic air routes. At the time, Mayor LaGuardia seemed pleased with advancements in air travel, made which he observed while making this journey home after his strenuous electoral campaign. The mayor-to-be left New York for a cruise to the West Indies by steamer. He abandoned the boat at Panama in order to make his return journey by air. Retracing his steps on this trip took only one-third of the elapsed time of his original southward journey. Pan American Airways carried him from Panama to Miami via Barranquilla, Kingston, Cuba, and the United States. From here, Eastern Air Transport hopped him up to Washington where LaGuardia spent a day in the capital. The following day, his honor, 
re-entered a plane as a passenger for a comparatively short trip up to New York City. Although there is a warm spot in his heart for aviation, Mr. LaGuardia has a number of diversified interests. He has long been a friend of all immigrants, a group who invariably finds themselves at a disadvantage immediately upon leaving their mother country. Mayor LaGuardia derives much of his understanding of people and their jobs from his own multiple interests. At various times, he has been a newspaperman, United States consul, interpreter at Ellis Island, lawyer, and politician. The contacts necessarily made in such absorbing occupations have left their imprint upon the present incumbent. He has assimilated much of what he has felt and seen so that the, the army-bred son of a bandmaster has become a true servant of the public. On June 1st, Eastern Airlines will be taking off for New York with Eastern's Transcon four times a day. Only Eastern reserves every single seat in cabin two just for discount travelers. For a very low $149 each way on a round trip, you can fly clear across the USA. Just reserve and buy your ticket at least seven days in advance and stay a Friday night. You'll get full coach service and something more. New York. Eastern's Transcon. This next story comes to us from the book, The Best of Repartee. Have you ever known an unforgettable person or persons? Most of us probably have, either through work, social situations, or random meetings. Someone immediately take to, want to be around more, just to see what their next adventure is, how they'll get out of this jam or create a new one, or to hear their next joke. Charismatic might be an adjective to describe them. This story was submitted to the 1981 edition of the mailbag in that, that book. The title is Howard Lee P.O. Clements. An unforgettable person, I don't, I don't want to say character because it doesn't sound complimentary to me. P.O. was a loyal Eastern employee and a friend. I first knew P.O. back in the 30s. He worked at Vero Beach and trips 9 and 10 made a stop there on the Miami-Chicago run. Bud Holman, a well-known and respected man of Vero Beach in the state of Florida, was the eastern manager at Vero, but P.O. was the head man of our airport operations. Many old-timers will remember this. Each time a flight came through Vero Beach, the passenger and crews were subbed a, served a cup of cold orange juice. This was carried on a long time. I don't know when the practice started or ended. Two of our Miami pilots, Bob Chu and Charlie Myers, were in with Bud Holman on a new grapefruit grove west of the airport. I remember when flying with either one, we would swing out west to get a low-altitude look at the young trees. There were no altitude or route restrictions then. One night, coming south on Old Trip 9 with Frank Kern, we made the scheduled Vero Beach stop. P.O. was working, and when we were ready for departure, he said he wanted to get on board and to hop out at the north end of the field. Seems he had female trouble. P.O. was single then, and evidently much in demand. There was a girl at the field waiting for him to get off. P.O. had another date and wanted to ditch this one. He told the girl that he had to go to Miami for a meeting. At departure time, P.O. boarded and we taxied down to the north end of the sod field for a takeoff south. When we turned around, went back and opened the door, P.O. hopped out. When the girl at the field saw the takeoff, she went back to town. P.O. made his way back in the dark to the terminal and later on filled his other date. Next time I ran into P.O. was at Corpus Crispy on old trips 21 and 22 that went through to Brownsville. Then in the early 40s, P.O. was based in Atlanta with our MTD operation. I think it was a crew scheduler. It happened that P.O. and I belonged to an order or club there in College Park. One of our members died and was to be buried in Fayetteville, Georgia, a small town about 18 to 20 miles south. Several of us, including P.O., decided to go to the cemetery. We arrived about the same time as the hearse. The casket was taken to the gravesite. A wooden box was to serve as a vault, and the box wouldn't fit down in the grave. The grave was wide enough, but too short. The box was cocked up, one end about halfway up to the grave top. 
The box was then lifted out with all in the very small group standing about, looking at each other, what knowing what to do. P.O. then did something I will never forget. He shucked off his coat, grabbed a pick and shovel, hopped down in the open grave and started digging and pitching the dirt out. He didn't give his clothes or shoes a second thought. He finally had the grave lengthened. The box fitted perfectly and the ceremony continued. This was P.O.'s style. He knew what was required and did it. P.O. later returned to Vero Beach. He is gone now, but he is unforgettable. new Boeing 727 jet. Look how high the tail is. 34 feet. Look where they put the jets. In the tail assembly. That's one reason it's so quiet. The passengers are always riding ahead of the sound. Where does it fly to? I don't know. It flies north. You can hightail it on Eastern's new 727 jetliner to Washington, Philadelphia, and Boston. And a unique new dining service is worth riding home about. Choose from a selection of superb entrees like lobster Newburgh, filet mignon with Bordelais sauce. Prepare it as you like it. Eastern 727 Jet. Quiet as a library. The smartest way to leave town? Come fly with Eastern. The people of Eastern were the company's greatest asset. The warmth, smiles, go with the service, and that's the greatest asset an airline can have. Here is just one of the millions of smiles, warmth, and kindness offered to our customers. It's the beyond-the-call acts that the people of Eastern gave every day of the company's history. This was written by Harry Watkins and titled About June. It's from the wings of many. I was working 4 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. shift in Atlanta reservations one evening. June Hatton took a phone call from an Army kid at the Greyhound bus station. He had gotten a ride from Columbus, Georgia, Fort Benning, to Atlanta and was trying to get a bus to Indianapolis to surprise his mom for Mother's Day. He learned that the bus travel time would put him there a little too late. Fortunately for him, he happened to reach June, and he, she listened to his story. He asked about flying on military standby, but she found out he didn't have enough money. June told him to wait outside the bus station, and we would be there about 12.40 after we got off work in about a half hour. I went with June and a few more people to pick up the kid. I'm sure he wondered what he was getting into, but trusted us. June drove to the airport, and we went inside. She paid the difference so he could get on the night coach around 3.15 a.m. to Indianapolis, and we stayed until he left. The flight was almost empty, so he got home in time for Mother's Day. He had gotten June's address to reimburse her for the part of the fare she paid. Later, she got a letter from the mother thanking, thanking her. June was such a wonderful, outgoing person. If you called Eastern with a problem, it became her problem. I will always have fond memories of June and our time working together. It was never a dull moment with her around. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern shuttle has always been very efficient. It's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. This story comes to us from The Wings of Man. It's entitled Working with Charlie by Gil Speed. Adventures of an English Engineer at Eastern. Anne and I were married in England and immigrated to the United States in June of 1957. 
My objective was to work as an engineer for an airline. After technical college in the UK, I worked as a design engineer on the Vickers Viscount 800. During the two years at the Vickers factory at Hearn Airport near Bournemouth, I had come in contact with the U.S. airline people and had developed a good relationship with several, including the chief engineer of Capital Airlines, a major customer for the Viscount. The two UK state-owned airlines at that time, British Overseas Airway Corp. and British European Airways, didn't hire people they hadn't trained themselves. Capital told me to call if I showed up in the U.S., but when I reached New York, I found that the airline was in financial difficulties. I had a few other contacts, including Dixon Spees, a well-known airline consultant. He told me he was having dinner with Eddie Rickenbacker that week and suggested I call him in a couple of days. I had to look up the name Rickenbacker and discovered he was an important part of American aviation history. When I called Spees again, he told me to call the captain. His secretary already had my name and said the captain advised me to call Charlie Frosch, VP Engineering. Charlie told me to come and see him. I went the next day to 10 Rockefeller Plaza and most, was most impressed with the location and Charlie. He was intrigued that, he, that we had come to the U.S. without jobs and with very little cash and told me how he had come, which wasn't quite as luxurious as the SS United States. Charlie was interested that I had worked on the Viscount and I was able to discuss some of the details of door design and also subcontracting. We had Sanders Row, the, the manufacturer of the Princess Flying Boat, making the detailed drawings for the doors of the Viscount 800, and a non-aviation company in Brighton assembling the doors. The Viscount 800 had rectangular doors instead of the elliptical design on the earlier Type 700. He was obviously very interested in the Viscount 800, and later I found out that the captain wanted the Lockheed Electra, and Charlie wanted to buy the Viscount. After spending some time with Charlie, he suddenly said, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with you, but when can you start? I showed up work two days later after a physical at a fancy doctor's office on Park Avenue and buying my first lightweight suit at Lord & Taylor. When I arrived, I was given my own office on the 10th floor overlooking the skating rink and told to order a drafting board and whatever I needed to draw interior configurations. In those days, there was no air conditioning in the offices, only large floor-mounted fans, so the challenge was to stop paper blowing out of the window. The first day, Bob McGuire, Charlie's assistant and an ex-CAB official, invited me to lunch, and thereafter, whenever he was in town, he and I lunched together. I learned a lot about America and Eastern Airlines history from Bob. I spent the next several months making drawings of DC-8 and Electra interiors and different seat pitches and first-class and tourist arrangements. Many hours were spent on the design for a DC-8 first-class lounge on the right side of the airplane with banquet-type seating and a table that could be height-adjusted for dining and cocktails. One day Charlie came into my office and said that at a meeting in Geneva, the IATA had decided that economy or tourist seating on the 707 and DC-8 was to be a 34-inch pitch. He told me to redo some of the DC-8 interior drawings with this pitch and get them up to the captain. The next morning, Charlie was on his way to visit Lockheed. Bob McGuire was also out of town, possibly at the IATA meeting. I worked late and had three DC-8 interior drawings ready the next morning. By then, I knew what the captain looked like. He always had an elevator to himself, but I had seen him cross the entrance hallway. At about 08.30, I took the original drawings up to his office and was told to leave them. Almost as soon as I returned to my office, the captain's secretary called me to tell me to get back up there. The captain had the drawings spread out on the table and two office chairs set one behind the other simulating the seat pitch. He asked me what I thought about sitting in the seat that close together. I told him that two office chairs didn't really give a true representation because of the seat back thickness and so on, and we could evaluate the pitch only if we had some aircraft seats set up. He told me to arrange it, then asked me why I had come to the U.S. and what was going to happen to England after the loss of face over the Suez crisis. Questions followed about the Viscount, of which he was not in favor, but he did have a high regard for Rolls-Royce, the engine manufacturer. 
He also asked me if I'd ever met Sir George Edwards, the managing director of Viscount Armstrong Aircraft, and later chairman of British Aircraft Corporation. Of course, I had not, and had only seen him at an aircraft delivery ceremony. He then started talking about the class system being still the way of life of England. Later I obtained some tourist seats and set them on a plywood frame that I designed. It was quite difficult because in order to increase underseat clearance for passengers, Douglas had mounted the outboard seat track on the sidewall with only the inboard leg on a floor-mounted seat track. I was bemused that Eastern senior executives would come and evaluate the comfort level and roominess of the seating arrangement for a multi-hour flight by sitting in the seats for a few minutes. The same happened at Pan Am several years later. I then started to work on a concept for the air shuttle, again making seat arrangements, but this time I could go look and sit in an airplane. I used to catch the Port Authority bus to New York for 25 cents and spent time inside Constellations, then make drawings of interior layouts for use by the proposed LaGuardia to Washington shuttle. Sometime later, I met Brad Walker. I think he was working for the advertising agency that handled Eastern, and I was told by Charlie to work with him on a schematic for the new Eastern exterior markings. Brad designed the hockey stick logo and wanted to put it on a DC-8 model. I obtained a large model from Douglas and hired an artist to paint Brad's design on the side of the airplane. This was all done with only Charlie knowing about it. When we were finished, Charlie told us to take the model up to the captain. Brad and I draped a cloth over the model and carried it in the elevator. We set the model on the table outside the captain's office and uncovered it. The secretary thought it was wonderful. When the captain came in, he walked right past without saying a word. I left and Brad stayed behind. Later I heard there was some heated discussion, but the captain shouting that it wasn't Eastern's markings and said no to the change. Some years later, after the captain left, the design was accepted. Early in 1958, I received my draft notice and had a report to Governor's Island. This was very upsetting, as I had been told by the U.S. Embassy in London that it would not be drafted because it had already served in a NATO force. I came back from the induction at Governor's Island and told Charlie what was going on. He called the captain and told me to be in his office the next morning. When I arrived, he asked me a few questions about what I had been told at the embassy. Later that day, Charlie advised I had been made part of the Civil Reserve and would not be drafted. I subsequently heard that the captain made a phone call to the draft board and really reamed someone out. Another day when I was in the office, alone, I took a call from the captain. He wanted to know what a QEC was. I started to explain, and eventually he asked, Do you have a diagram you can show me? I took up a copy of a maintenance manual which had a schematic of the various parts making up a quick engine change module. He studied it for some time, then asked me did I think four engines were safer than three. I answered that if there was power to spare with one engine out, it didn't really matter. He muttered something and I was to learn later that he was convinced the public had been sold on the safety of four engines. By then I had seen a drawing on his table showing comparisons between the Boeing 727 a Sud Aviation Caravelle, and a DC-9. I think Dixon Spees was involved in a new airplane evaluation. I had seen him at various SA meetings and, of course, had thanked him for the introduction to Charlie. Early in 1959, Charlie gave me a copy of the proposed ATA Spec 100 and asked me what I thought of the concept. The specification designed a numbering scheme for aircraft parts and the appearance of printed aircraft maintenance information. It contained format and content guidelines for technical manuals written by aircraft manufacturers and suppliers. This document proposed an industry-wide standard for aircraft systems numbering, often referred to as the ATA system or ATA chapter numbers. I wrote a report saying a system such as this was long overdue and all manufacturers should be pushed to adopt it. I had used the Neptune and Shackleton manuals, and even though both were well done, there was no relationship between the two. If you wanted information on wheels and brakes, each manufacturer had their own system to find. So if you had more than one manufacturer's airplane in your fleet, you had to be conversant with each company's system. The idea also had a merit as a filing system. For more than a year, I had heard Charlie call out to his secretary, give me the letter I wrote to XYZ on, 
So I suggested that we can also break down the office files into ATA 100 categories. Charlie thought that was a good idea, but of course the office staff still liked general files, which were each about two inches thick. I was given the job of organizing the files. Fortunately, I was able to hire a retired New York City cop who had a disability and worked as a filing clerk. It took a long time to convince Charlie's secretary that was a good idea. I think she finally forgave me when she saw Charlie go to a filing cabinet one day and pull the file he needed to look at. After two years working for Charlie, I realized that if I were to move up in the organization, I would have to transfer to Miami, where the rest of Eastern's engineering was located. This was difficult. When I started putting out the word that I would like to move, I received a negative reaction from the Miami people. Why would anyone move from working for the boss to the line organization? So no one took me seriously. I looked around at the other airlines with engineering departments in New York, and Pan Am was in the process of organizing its overseas division at Idlewild, moving people from Miami and San Francisco. After talking to Pan Am, I was offered a position as a structures engineer. As soon as I told Charlie, he made a call to Miami, and I was offered a job there. But Ann and I decided to stay in New York and accepted a job with Pan Am. Gilbert Speed spent more than 60 years in the commercial aviation industry, starting as a student and apprentice. He worked for several years for Eastern, then went to Point Pan Am, then went out on his own. Eastern than any other airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day. It's great having a source for maintenance memories. Steve Giadoni is not only a great writer, but his stories about his job with Eastern is easy to listen to. His story about working on the inside of an RB211 engine was very interesting to this Boeing 757 captain. It was told in our Episode 7 of the Memories of a Great Airline, as told by the people of Eastern Airlines. Surprise, surprise, starts the article by Steve. Everything doesn't go as planned in line maintenance. I was working afternoon shift line maintenance in Kansas City, MCI, sometime during 1987 and 88. We had a flight that stopped at MCI on its way to what was then Washington National, DCA. The flight was operated with a Boeing 757. I'd never received any formal training on the 757. I'd completed the mechanics training program at Miami in 1980. Eastern operated its first 757 flight on January 1st, 1983. So I had been trained on every aircraft in the Eastern fleet except the 757. This particular night, the 757 had center tank fueling valves that were inoperative. This required us to open the valves manually. Normal operation of the valves was through a switch at the fueling panel at the right wing leading edge. Another AMP and I were assigned the job. We spoke to some other mechanics who had worked the 757 before, and they told us that we needed to open the valves by turning a neural knob on the back of the valve counterclockwise. Sounds simple enough. Right? Well, the aircraft arrived at the gate and we jumped into action. The center fuel tank fueling valves were mounted to the wing rear spar in each of the wheel wells. 
so it required a ladder to reach them. I positioned the ladder in the right wheel well, and the other AMP, we'll call him Kevin, set up the ladder in the left wheel well. The fueler was ready to go. His truck was in position, and the hose was connected to the fueling manifold. All we needed to do was get the valves open, and fuel would flow. That's right. Fuel did flow, but not into the center tank. The fueler had the fueling manifold pressurized with fuel. Kevin and I located the neural knobs and we proceeded to turn to try to turn them counterclockwise to open the valves, but the knobs wouldn't turn. There was a red metal guard attached with two screws that stopped the knob from further turning further any further. So we got the bright idea to remove the metal guard so we could turn the knobs. Now that I think about it, now that I think about it, the color red should have been a clue. But we pressed on because we we wanted an on-time departure. Kevin and I must have been working in perfect unison because as soon as I rotated the knob a couple of turns, it popped off into my hand a fuel gauge gushing out of the valve. A fuel came gushing out of the valve. I looked over to the left wheel well, and I could see that Kevin was in the same predicament. I gathered, gathered my thoughts and shouted to the fueler to kill the fuel pressure, and the shower eventually stopped. I won't get into the technical details of why this happened, but I will tell you that years later, when I was a 757 maintenance instructor with TWA, I used this experience as an example of what not to do when we discuss the fuel system. I think personal experience carries a lot of weight. Our problem with the fueling valves was due in part to the fact that the valves were already fully open when the aircraft arrived at MCI. The AMPs at the prior station didn't turn them clockwise to close them, so they were backed out right up against the red guard. For those of you who are familiar with the 757, I know what you're going to say. The maintenance manual tells you not to remove the red tabs, and you are correct. It does. I found that out after the fact. I've also been told that the caution do not remove the tab was added to the maintenance manual after this incident. No excuses. The things that time pressure will make you do. In the end, we had no replacement valves at MCI, so the flight was canceled. I also remembered standing by the jetway with the flight crew looking down at Kevin and I and one of the MCI uh, crash trucks and the guys with the silver suits hosing down the fuel. Ouch. Things don't always go as planned in line maintenance. Eastern Airlines serves 26 of our 50 United States. But today, we look beyond assigned flight patterns, and we see the miracle that is America. Her names are written on the land, and the peoples who wrote them are diverse as the land itself. Polynesian mariners landed on the shores of this island from their outrigger canoes and called it Hawaii. The Spanish found this stretch of coastline lovely and named it the Jewel. La Hoya. An Indian tribe cut this name with the flint tip of a feathered shaft. Mojave. In the shadows of the Rockies, our conscience named a settlement Fair Play. Scandinavian mythology swept a plateau that rims the Grand Canyon and called it Valhalla. The French embraced the Mississippi with a parish and they called it Baton Rouge. Killing this Pennsylvania farmland, German settlers named it Heidelberg. The English settled Cape Cod and called the county Barnstable. E pluribus unum, one from many. This is the miracle we celebrate today. One nation indivisible with liberty and justice for all.
we celebrate not the final achievement, for there is much still to be achieved. We celebrate the promise, the progress, the hope. Hello, folks. This is a continuation of a story by Antolin Garcia Carbonell from The Wings of Man. We previously learned in this story how the uh, how Captain Eddie moved much of Eastern's operation down to Miami Springs, and then that the Miami Springs Villa was built, and that's where Eastern started their stewards tra uh, training back in the summer of 1955. The flight attendant training of Miami Springs Villas. Bringing Eastern's flight attendant training program to Miami Springs Villas was a very good deal for both parties. Eastern gained access to a first-class hotel with an Olympic-sized swimming pool in close proximity to its terminal and maintenance base. There was a cabin mock-up and galley, as well as classrooms and other parts of the villas. Modeling classes were held on the pool staircases and weather permitting, other classes were held under the shade of trees in the gardens. Early in the 1960s, Eastern was training 1,200 stewardesses every year because the average tenure was only 22 months. Eastern's recruiting advertisements emphasized that candidates would spend their five-week training period with all expenses paid at the glamorous Miami Springs Villas. Art Brown saw an incredible marketing opportunity in the beautiful single women that occupied a substantial portion of the hotel's rooms and consumed their meals on premises. Local businessmen flocked to the villas for meals and drinks. By 1959, Miami Springs Villas had added another block of rooms, several more restaurants and lounges, and was grossing $2 million a year. For Eastern, the ditching training exercises conducted in the pool of the villas were a very important part of its corporate, corporate culture. In 1942, while on a mission for the U.S. Army, Rickenbacker was on an aircraft that became lost in the South Pacific and ditched in the water. Along with seven other men, he was adrift on a rickety life raft for three weeks. The search and rescue operations received coverage comparable to Amelia Earhart's disappearance. After his rescue, Rickenbacker criticized the equipment and procedures for ditching aircraft and on his recommendations so the entire system was changed. He published his account of an ordeal that was made into a movie by 20th Century Fox in 1945 called Captain Eddie, starring Fred McMurray. In 1961, Art Bruins hired architect Francis Talaska to, be, to design a 7,000 square foot training building which was leased out to Eastern. The two-story structure had a recessed entryway and exterior staircases in the style of a red brick New Orleans townhouse. It had offices, a living room, and an 80-seat auditorium with Boeing 727 gallery on the ground floor and three classrooms on the second floor. And there were other aviation activities at Miami Springs Villa besides uh, stewardess training. Given the villa's proximity to the eastern base and terminal, it became a convenient venue for many of the airline's social and business activities. Until the present Miami terminal opened in 1959, the villa's was the closest first-class hotel to the 36th Street terminal and provided convenient overnight accommodations for travelers, including celebrities such as Ernest Hemingway and Errol Flynn flying on to Cuba. In 1965, Miami's aviation exec executives leased space for a private club at the villas where they could relax and conduct sensitive meetings and discussions in a discreet setting. For complex and often contentious employee union negotiations involving large groups of participants, large ballrooms were available. Eastern employee social groups, such as the flight attendant Silverliners, held fundraising fashion shows and parties at the villas. It was also a venue for employee weddings, especially popular with flight attendant brides. The Villas was also pr provided the setting for one of Eastern's most difficult moments. On December the 29th, 1972, Eastern Flight 401, operated by one of its recently acquired L-1011 TriStars, crashed into the Everglades. The rescue operations and reconstruction of the crash consumed several months. 
In March of 1973, the National Transportation and Safety Board rented the Florida Room, the largest ballroom at the Villies, to conduct the inquest into the accident. The report of this inquest led to a system-wide revision of the operating procedures that were the cause of the tragedy. The Association of Survivors of Eastern Flight 401 recognized the importance of this inquest and the ties that many of them had to Miami Springs Villas have proposed acquiring a block of pavers in the mansion's courtyard to serve as a memorial. In the final days of the Miami Springs Villas, business partners forced Art Bruns out of Miami Springs Villas in 1977. Although the new management kept the villas open for another decade, things were never the same. Eastern and Miami Springs Villas both went out of business about the same time. For Harry Lindquist and myself, thank you for tuning us in today. We hope you will come back and listen to more stories and memories of the world's greatest airline. Stories of its people and planes as told by the Eastern family. If you missed the 8 p.m. scheduled radio show, don't worry, as it will be in the active file on the Internet in the archive at blogtalkradio.com forward slash C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, Captain Eddie. The episodes are listed by numbers with the highest number, the latest broadcast. Since this is our eighth broadcast and each episode usually has seven to eight stories, you will have some great memories to catch up on if you are a first-time listener. We hope to turn you into a regular listener with these fascinating Eastern stories. Now, if you have a story about Eastern Airlines that you would like to share with others and tell your part of the Eastern memories, why not send it to us? Our email is eneilholland at yahoo.com. That's eneil, N-E-A-L-H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. We'll record it and give you the credit on the air. Now, until next week, we'll sign off with the familiar theme music of our beloved airline, Eastern Airlines. Good night to the Eastern family and friends.
What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.